Retro Hangover is supported via Patreon by listeners like you. We'd especially like to thank patrons Lyle McCarns, Ashton Ruby, Randall Quiggle, Tony G, Thunderdome Gaming Society, Katie Quigg, Paul Romalo, Raging Demon, JC, Megan Caruso, Mast Keaton, Andrew Liguori, Retro Overdrive, Ozzy Garcia, The Retro Vixen, Adam from The Good, The Bad, and The Backlog, Keith Gasper, Disky Mera, GC Freak 898 The Saturnian, and Dave Jackson. Your continued engagement and generous donations are deeply appreciated. Open your ears and crack some beers. You are listening to the latest episode of Retro Hangover. failing for full frontal fission futures this is retro hangover i am your co-host chris copeline with special guest patron randall and as always your host shane conspiracy dick theory dragon i can't yell i have covid koski uh you know for some reason and it might also just be because this was top of mind because i saw something about it the other day i feel like we also need to hang on to that one for the inevitable splinter cell episode we do at some point because i want like the chaos theory dick dragon at some point oh yeah well the chaos theory is actually a game too i mean it is in the venerable splinter cell series oh thought that was also another game i don't know i mean it probably is but you know probably yeah it's two words that sound cool put together like gun hazard that (laughs) that's very topical yes (laughs) anyway welcome to the show everybody listening welcome to the show randall is this the first time we've had you on a main episode i've known we had you on a guidance but i think it's your first time to everybody yeah so i've been on i want to think two or three patreon exclusive episodes and this would be the first mainline episode that you guys have invited me to (laughs) that's awesome he's just so happy Mm -hmm. and the reason randall is here is because this is a patron poll episode Uh, he submitted this game to be for a our quarterly poll and we don't always bring on our are the people who nominate topics for for the patron poll but randall had been on a streak (laughs) of like three or four games yeah we especially won't invite you if it's a shitty pick. <laughs> no. And then we just kind of got to the point where like, you know what? He's never been on an episode. Randall's been a top tier patron for what seems like forever. That's true. And it, it probably was about time to bring him on to an episode anyway. So thank you so much for, for being a patron at our top tier, like HD tier, and for submitting such wonderful games the past couple months. Oh. Or quarters, I should say. Maybe we shouldn't uh, mention the one that I just recently submitted uh, just to completely try to fuck you over, but it didn't work anyway. So, you know. Yeah, it lost. So that's good. <laughs> Handedly. <laughs> we're just not, we're not counting that one. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well. Let's get into what we normally do, as we are want to do. I'm done. I don't want to talk anymore. I'll kick it over to Shane Jesus. before we talk about... You no, know, before we started recording this episode, both Randall, the Quiggle, the Quigster, one might say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were very clear on asking if Chris wanted to record right now. And he was like, no, man, I'm fine. 
Everything's everything is a okay. <sighs> everything is good. As soon as we get on the everything microphone, then he's just like, I, I can't be here. I'm not talking like that. <laughs> I just I thought I was be able. Well, I didn't even think I'd be able to yell. I didn't even try. <laughs> that would have been bad because as soon as I start raising my voice, it got bad because I do have covid. We'll talk about that mm. in a minute because we talk about the games that, that we tasty Rona like to play. Yes, it's it's I have some of the Rona. <laughs> and because Randall is our guest, Randall, how about you tell us some of the games you've been playing lately? OK, so playing lately, I played this most recently and having played this, I decided to delve deeper into my backlog because I was like, wait, so I've gotten out of my normal my normal habits to play this. Let me go try to dig through some stuff. So I played and beat Dear Esther. Esther can't pronounce that. That was OK. Ooh. I've been playing a lot of uh, Forza Horizon 5 and uh, RimWorld just get back on on that swing of things but that's pretty much all i've been playing besides game that we are talking about today good deal very nice yeah rim world as i understand it is a giant time suck it's you know it's a huge simulation game i, I wouldn't consider it a strategy game because the the whole point of it and what the way that they designed it was specifically hey this is just a simulation like a colony sim and it's going to tell stories don't try to beat it you can beat it. Obviously, there are win conditions, but mm-hmm. uh, that's not the point. I think I've in the in the past like week, I've already had two colonies completely die, and I've posted them in the in the Discord with little story bits. But yeah, no, that's oh, I think I have like four hundred some hours on that game right now. <laughs> Sounds about right. That's like a holy shit buddy of mine for a while there. All I would ever see popping up on Steam was he's he's playing RimWorld like at at all hours of the day and night. It's very addictive. I mean, it's not nearly as bad as uh, something like Factorio, which I do have downloaded, but I haven't started playing again because I know what will happen the moment that I do <laughs> because it's called Cracktorio for a reason. Ah, yes, of course. Maybe we should just suggest you slay the spire as well. Uh, uh, no, I've already I have like a hundred some hours in that. I've already beaten the, <laughs> the fan made DLC for that game. It's very good. The fan made DLC should have been actually sold for money, but I'm not going to get into that. I, I, oh, I wow. had a pretty good sense of the kind of games that you like, Randall, the last time. I think it was the Steam summer sale and you posted your haul and I went and actually looked at all of the games that you bought. And I was like, motherfucker, every one of these is like a card based roguelike. <laughs> <laughs> that just so happened to, to be a coincidence because it's, it's, it's uh. just strategy games. But I didn't own a lot of roguelike deck builders besides Slay the Spire and like one other one mm-hmm. and i had been slowly amassing games on my steam wish list and i was like you know what i'm just I'm gonna only buy the rogue de- roguelike deck builders so i bought like i think eight of those and i've already beaten three of them I, as far as you can beat quote unquote beat a roguelike deck builder sure yeah i've already played through a lot of them well there's certainly no shortage of them i mean not that not that the formula itself is bad because there are some of them that i really like as well like i've played a bit of slay the spire and i've enjoyed that and a few others but uh, without going on too much of a tangent i think that's the latest like trend that probably needs to like cool off a little bit in the gaming industry like every time a new indie game is announced and i see it somewhere as soon as i see the words roguelike deck building or souls like i'm just like oh fuck off like what about boomer shooter that yeah. one's definitely coming back oh i'm no i'm 100 for that bring oh, them okay. on okay oh, okay them. so you're biased i fuck yes yes i am 
as it turns out. <laughs> Reminds me of the days when Puzzle Quest was big and you saw a lot of those. Oh, geez. Try, you know, a lot of indies try to copy that, too. I mean, we're still getting that even to this day. You like... Yeah. everybody even big ips just trying to like crank out these like this play is your favorite superhero it's match three to use the power and i'm like wow great effort guys a plus it's original i personally think that match three games uh need to uh be burned in hell uh, like it's some of the lowest uh, effort games ever released <laughs> anyways agreed Agreed. But they work. Yeah, they do. They do. I mean, like, Puzzles and Dragons was pretty cool. You know? Puzzle Quest, the OG, of course. But at any rate, I suppose I should talk about what I've been playing. Let's see. Outside of the the game du jour, I have been lured into playing Fallout 76. And I stayed away from that game like the fucking plague, as I think a lot of people did in the beginning, because it was trash. Uh Funny, Shane. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah. There you go. (laughs) It just wasn't good. I mean, the fact that you released a Fallout game with zero actual NPCs on it is pretty fucking telling. But a couple of my buddies have been playing it and they were like, yeah, you should jump in. You should jump in. It'll be fun. I'm like, ah, I don't know. And they're like, yeah, just do it. I'm like, "Okay, fine. So I did it. And um, I have actually been pleasantly surprised. I'm not going to lie. Like, granted, there's still the microtransaction-y bullshit that's kind of around the peripheral of the game, which is never super fun, but you can still play more or less the entire thing without even touching any of that stuff. And at its core, now that they've had enough time to, to iterate on it, it actually does kind of feel like just another Fallout 3 or Fallout 4, but like kind of in the best way. I ended up staying up until like 5 a.m. playing it, Partially because I was playing with my friends, um, and that always makes anything better. Uh, Also, just because that really scratches that particular itch for me. It's like that and Skyrim, where it's just this big open world where you can just come across like caves or in this case, like abandoned factories and shit and just spend like a good 30 to 45 minutes sneaking around and scouring this like abandoned building and like scavenging supplies and finding neat shit and it's pretty engaging so you know what i've I've actually been having a surprisingly amount of fun uh with fallout 76 so i guess a decent purchase now in the year 2022 maybe awesome <laughs> well, i guess it depends on what you're into i will say besides that i haven't been playing a whole lot although you did remind me randall because you were talking about like deck builders and things like that that i have been playing dicey dungeons on my phone mm. that is a good game you can actually I think it's available cross platform so you can play it on PC as well. I think that's probably where it started. Actually, it is it is a little like sort of I wouldn't even really call it a roguelike necessarily because there is kind of a definitive set of levels and sort of a definitive end to the story. Once you play through all of the different characters, like sort of storylines such as they are, but it's got a lot of the same trappings. Um, where like every one of those set runs, you know, you basically start from nothing, but each one has like different rules in place that change up how the game plays and how you interact with stuff and how you kind of build your your loadout. And essentially, it's like you roll a set amount of dice and then you apply those dice to these cards that you have um, in order to activate abilities. And normally like this could either go one of two ways like it could either just be really kind of a shoddy implementation of this and it's kind of just trying to hit that roguelike 
thing and cash in on some money. But there was a lot of thought that was obviously put into the mechanics of how this game works, and it all functions really, really well together. Mm -hmm. So I've actually been enjoying that quite a bit. And let's see, I think that's pretty much it for right now. I'm trying to think if there's anything else notable to bring up. Not really. I got to get back to Elden Ring and actually finish that at some point, but that's been on a minor hiatus for right now. But I guess that's pretty much it for me. Chris, what about you? What have you been doing, especially now that you've, I guess, had some time at home forcibly? Yeah, I was actually going to this this portion was going to be quick for me because I was just and going to end up saying just the game of the week, you know. But actually, because I ended up getting COVID, fortunately or unfortunately, I, I leaned to unfortunately, but it did give me some time to play some games. Mm. I played a little bit of Vampire Survivors. And when I say a little bit, I played it three times for a combined total of like nine hours <laughs> because that's how that game works. Mm -hmm. And every single time I get done with that game, I just look at myself and be like, I hate this game. <laughs> I I don't know why I, I, I'm playing it for as long as I'm playing it, but the, I don't like it. But then I'll go back and play it and then play it for like another three hours straight. I'll be like, what is wrong with me? That's how they get you. I know, right? So I, I played some Vampire Survivors. I also played some East Memories of Celsetta. I got back to that after beating this game. Uh, just because, you know, I've been sitting around at home and finding stuff to do and that I wanted to get back on my year of Final Fantasies, as I've put it, just trying to get through those games, which kind of stalled out as I was playing through, ironically, a Final Fantasy game, which was the Pix remaster. I think I said last episode I got through that, but I'm not sure. So I did. Yeah, Final Fantasy V, Poor Job Fiesta is complete. You can watch all those videos on YouTube right now. It was a successful campaign, we made some donations to charity, and we look forward to all of you joining us next year for that. And uh, the last one I want to talk about, I really want to spend a little bit more time on, is a game called Good Night with a K. Hmm. I don't want to call it a bullet hell. It's kind of a bullet hell, but you don't really, you're not a ship. You're, what you are is you're a dude that you run around in a circle and then enemies in the circle fire bullets at you and you have to dodge the bullets, but you can't move. The only thing you can do is change direction by pressing a button. So like when you press a button, your character turns around, you can hold it down to slow down. And if that's getting too much for you, there's another button you can hold down to slow down time. And it's really cool. It's really entrenched in Filipino folklore. Hmm. And like there's a lot of mythological creatures that you probably haven't seen a lot because I in the games that we play, we see a lot of Greek or, or really Norse mythology in terms of what what developers tend to pull from. So seeing a different culture be represented in the video game sphere, even though not it's not a big game. It's nice to like experience something a little bit different, especially in a game that's super addictive because the game is hard as balls. I think the what is it on the first level? I died like 130 times, <laughs> but as soon as you die, you get right back into it and you hit a checkpoint after every wave and a wave's only like five to ten seconds long. So as long as you can survive and there's a, on the first level, there's 107 different waves. As long as you can survive, you can make it all the way through and it's pretty quick to do so. Highly addictive, highly recommend it. Uh, go check out Good Night. Still early access on Steam for like 10 bucks. Hmm. Nice. That sounds, uh, yeah, like an interesting concept. Like, and, and pulling from mm -hmm. the Filipino folk folklore too is pretty cool. Cause yeah, I think there's a lot of very underserved like mythologies out there. Like, as much as I'm, you know, a big part of my family is from 
you know, Finland and that area, like, uh, you know, we could probably cool it on all the Norse stuff for a while. <laughs> yeah. The cool thing is, too, is when you die, it, it cusses at you. And sometimes it cusses at you in Tagalog. Oh. And I can appreciate a game. Yeah, it like goes way over the top in terms of the whole entire Dark Souls mentality of you're going to die. Mm. <laughs> so they're just like, yeah, you're going to die hundreds of times, but it's OK because you're going to get better. And then you die and it's just like, oh, this is shit or oh, fried balls or, you know, some some crazy words that they have or adobo. It just says adobo. And that's all it says. It's made by Filipinos, but it's <laughs> it's hilarious. It, it, like there's so much good about it. Now, speaking about what is good, what people usually say is the their favorite part of our show is the brief history. And we're going to be talking about a game called Front Mission Gun Hazard. And because I am short of breath or prolonged periods of talking, in fact, I'm surprised I'm going even this long, Shane is going to be giving you the brief history of this game that we're talking about this week. So, Shane. Yes. Please give us the brief history of Front Mission Gun Hazard. As many of you may already be aware, a relatively small number of video games developed in Japan during the 16-bit era ever made it beyond their shores. Of these titles, the RPG genre fared the worst, seeing very little exposure to Western audiences, largely due to the amount of time and effort required to translate a novel's worth of dialogue for every potential export. Despite this precedent, Square was of the mind to create a role-playing game containing elements and themes tailored to attract a Western audience. This gamble of an effort would come to be known as Front Mission, an isometric turn-based strategy game set in the near future, featuring a plot rife with political intrigue and deception. Players would control walking panzers, or vanzers, which were highly customizable mechs designed to dominate the battlefield. Unfortunately, Square's bet didn't quite pay off, as they were unable to justify the cost and people power necessary to localize Front Mission for their intended Western audience. The game was, however, successful enough in their home territory to warrant its own franchise. Perhaps in an attempt to further explore the world they had created with Front Mission, Square made the unexpected decision to develop a spin-off title before a more traditional sequel. This Gaiden of sorts would shape up to be a side-scrolling run-and-gun affair that had no real narrative connection to its predecessor. Many of Square's heavy hitters were brought on board to assist with the project, with Yoshitaka Amano covering character design, Nobuo Uematsu and Yasunori Mitsuda composing the score, and Hironobu Sakaguchi playing the role of supervisor. Square would look beyond their own walls for development resources, however, enlisting the talents of Omiyasoft, which contained some members of Messiah, who developed Assault Suits Vulcan, or Cybernator, in the West. The game would lean heavily into the team's Cybernator pedigree, having a customizable mech with eight-directional shooting and multiple weapons, as well as a party system. The game, being from Square, 
would naturally feature RPG elements such as leveling systems and, of course, plenty of grinding. On February 23rd of 1996, Front Mission series Gun Hazard would see release in Japan for the Super Famicom. Critical reception was somewhat lukewarm, with Famitsu scoring the game a middling 28 out of 40. The game's commercial performance was similarly underwhelming, selling 180,000 units by the end of the year, but managing to sell 300,000 units overall throughout its lifetime. Gun Hazard would never officially find its way outside its home country of Japan, but would receive a fan translation for those wishing to give it a whirl. For fans of retro RPGs, Gun Hazard has always been an obscure curiosity in the prolific catalog of an industry giant, being largely forgotten even within the lineage of the series that serves as its namesake. And that is your brief history of Front Mission series Gun Hazard. Thank you, Shane. I like the fact that when most people talk about this game, they drop the series, even though it's officially part of the title. I mean, we, we've been doing that, basically. Yeah, we definitely have. Up until now. It's, it's so weird. Yeah, because that's the official name of the game is Front Mission Series Gun Hazard. But no one calls it that because that's dumb. Right. Yeah. Look, I, I look at the history of this game. And after playing it, I'll get it to a little bit later. I can completely understand why this didn't come over to the United States or anywhere outside of it. Mm hmm. It makes a ton of sense. I mean, when you think about the release date here, February 23rd, 1996, I know the PlayStation and Saturn route, and that was what, like seven, eight months away from the N64. Mm -hmm. So it was right around the time that Square would stab Nintendo in the back. Now, of course, <laughs> Nintendo took a giant target, gave them the knife and turned around. But that's besides the point, like Square just ran over the PlayStation. This is right before that happened. So I can completely understand why we never saw this here. Yeah, I think that coupled with just the, a lot of the aspects and mechanics of the game feel very, very Japanese, if that makes sense. So I'm I'm not surprised that this, you know, probably well, didn't make it over here, but probably wouldn't have made much of a splash, I think. Yeah. I feel like there's just some extra there's some extra layers of complication that are put on top of the core sort of run and gun gameplay. That's not necessarily bad, but I don't think it's something that a Western audience would have been super receptive to. But we'll we'll get into that more in a little bit. There are a lot of things a Western audience would not have been receptive to. <laughs> Any anything you're taking away from the history here, uh, Randall? Not necessarily, other than the I did write in my notes a little later that it is very interesting that much of the the same team who made Cybernator were brought into into this game. You can if you've played Cybernator, which I I haven't, but I've watched it, it during my research for this. I watched a lot of videos on it. You can definitely tell that it is the same team. Oh yeah, yeah. Not not only does it. I wouldn't say the games look similar. They do play similar and they do function the same. But not only that, apparently it was a huge issue 
for fans of Cybernator going, wait, is this is this like a reskin version of this game? What what is this? Uh, they, they were really they would conflate the two, confuse the two, and be like, "Oh no, wait, that one's Cybernator, and that one's Gun Hazard." And on top of that, I actually looked up the the main box art for Front Mission Gun Hazard. The word "series" is not on the box, so that's probably why a lot of people leave off the word "series" is because when you see the art, it just says Front Mission and then Gun Hazard. There is no series in it, right? Not until you actually start up the game do you see the series in the title True. in in the katakana, right? And it's actually it's funny that you were bringing it up. Randall, because that that is quite literally one of the first things that I said to Chris when I started playing this. I was just like, this really feels a lot like Cybernator. He's like, yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> it's like, because ah. like, weirdly enough, I actually owned a copy of I think I still have it. Actually, I think I have a copy of Cybernator for the Super Nintendo. I picked it up at like a flea market or something based solely on just like the art on the cartridge. And it was like three dollars. And I had no idea what it was. Turns out, by the way, I hated Cybernator. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually play it that much because uh, I super could not get my head wrapped around controlling the mech and also pointing the gun in several different directions. But yeah, maybe I should go back and play Cybernator now because maybe I'd actually like it. <laughs> it looks like it, it. an RPG maybe has changed your mind. Possibly. Quite possibly. Mm. All right, so we're going to talk about our own personal experiences with this game, which I think is probably going to be super quick. I was like, do I'll just we have any? Off. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> that's, that's where I was going to kick it off. I've heard of this game. I was somewhat of a fan of the Front Mission series for a while, and I am so excited that I think yeah, Front Mission is getting a remaster remake soon. That's going to be coming out, I think, for the Switch and all modern systems. Because I remember picking up Front Mission 3 and just absolutely falling in love with that game. Uh, same with, well, not so much Front Mission 4. That game bored me to tears within the first hour or so. I don't know why. But Front Mission 3 was like really cool. So I've been waiting for more Front Mission stuff. But this was a game that always kind of eluded me, like more so than the other ones, because at least the other ones I could kind of track and try to get down with the plot. And this game just, it was so different. And so, it, like, it was interesting. But for some reason, I never touched it or never really had a desire to. So when it got nominated for the patron poll, I was actually pretty excited to go and play it, especially because on my Instagram, one of my Instagram friend, Mike, has a store called Game Room Market where he sells repro cartridges. And I just had happened to pick one up. So it's like, oh, sweet. Now I get to play this game that will serve a purpose beyond looking good on a shelf. And I, <laughs> I was very grateful for that. Shane, I think are you going to be as long winded as I am on that? Uh, probably not. No. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, like it's a Japanese exclusive game from 1996 or something like what? How would I, I I've never heard of this game ever. Like I wasn't importing shit like some weebs that I happen to know. So like I, I definitely would have never <laughs> known this existed. I actually wasn't even familiar with the front mission series period up until this was mentioned for our patron poll but you know what having said that though I, I do have to agree that i was glad that this not only was nominated but ultimately picked because this is the kind of thing that i really enjoy as sort of a a part of doing this show is almost in a way like being forced to <laughs> experience games that i otherwise would have never played or never knew about this was certainly one of those cases and you know i i was actually very very happy to jump in and, and try something, try something new. 
that also, you know, spoiler was not, you know, abjectly terrible. So there you go. Mm. There you go. Rattle. Just to kind of reiterate, I, I did do a little research for that Patreon poll because I wanted to pick something. I wanted to uh, pick an obscure JRPG. And while doing research for it, I came across this. On a, on a YouTube channel called uh, Zygor Gaming, mm. he uh, had a review for it in March of 2022. Of all of all things, <laughs> it, essentially, I was immediately intrigued by the tagline genres for this, which was run and gun mech JRPG. And I was like, okay, I Perfect. I don't I, all I need to see is a picture of this, and I, I saw. I think a screenshot of the mech, like the the base mech, like flying through the sky, shooting like little pellets. And I was like, oh, oh no, this is fine. This is great. <laughs> Grab it. And then I saw that the box art was done by the same artist who does all of the box art for Final Fantasy. And I was like, OK, mm-hmm. perfect. I'll throw this in there. Hopefully you guys have heard of it because I certainly haven't. And then just yeah, stuck on mono. Yeah. Yeah. And just chuck it in there. That, that, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's my personal experience. I ran into it randomly. <laughs> Fantastic. And it won. I mean, I feel like for the most part, that's the thing. I feel like that's probably going to be most people's experiences unless you're somehow listening to this from Japan, which hello. Hi, Japan. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess something that's possibly a little more interesting than our non-experience with the game. Um, we could talk a little bit about, the, the plot and writing, which, by the way, I mean, Ooh. I should probably I feel like this is a foregone conclusion, but I'm going to go ahead and preface this discussion anyway, just by saying that, yes, we did play this game with a fan translation. So any commentary that we have may not necessarily be a direct commentary on the original writing. It's what we had to work with. So just putting that out there as a caveat. Also, I'm going to say probably light spoilers in here. I'm going to try and avoid spoilers as much as I can, but there's going to be some light spoilers. So if that really bothers you, you know, you can skip ahead a little bit. Mm-hmm. Overall, what did you what did you all think of the plot? Because uh. I thought it was pretty good. Randall, I, I've seen your notes. I've seen what you said in Discord, and you just said you did not give a shit about the <laughs> plot at all. So instead of me saying that, I'll let you officially say that. I'm going to be completely honest. So I didn't run across the fan translation until you had sent it to me. So I played, I, f- I found out that I played through nearly half the game in Japanese because I was just, nope, I'm just going to play it. You know, I didn't know there was an English version. We're just going to go through it. And a lot of the time I was like pausing the game, grabbing my phone, bringing up Google Lens, taking a picture, translating something important, using Google Translate and be like, OK, I think I get the gist and then moving on. Holy shit. Oh. I don't even know how you did that. Like, it's hard enough to parse out like what any of the items and weapons are with in English, let alone <laughs> in Japanese. You know, let's just say I I took a lot of pictures for the first <laughs> couple days of playing. And then that's when I finally went, guys, did, please tell me there is an English version of this. And then since I had to replay through a lot of the beginning, I was like, OK, I understand this. is This might be interesting, but I'm I'm done with <laughs> with this this part. So I just want to kind of skip ahead. Now, I did read it and I was paying attention. So it was interesting, I guess. But it started at like, I'm not going to lie, it started glazing over in my head because I was just like, I got to get back to where I was originally and then I can maybe start paying attention again. Spoilers, I didn't. (laughs) Oh, 
But, you know, we got there eventually. And I will say about the fran- fan translation, it is widely toted. Is that the you know, phrase I'm looking for? Yeah. And on a lot of the forums that I saw, a lot of people think it's really good. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll throw that out there, or at least I'll throw mm-hmm. that out there. Apparently, it was really good. I can't read Hiragana, Katakana, I can't, or Kanji. I can't read any of that. So I don't know if it was good. But I was told it was good. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, by and large, I kind of felt like as far as the plot is concerned, it felt fine. Like it seemed like pretty standard near future semi kind of maybe dystopian a little bit where crooked politicians and shady cabals determine the course of world affairs kind of, I don't know, like Tom Clancy ass kind of business. Like, I don't know. It just. It didn't, it didn't, wasn't really anything that really popped to me like, oh, wow, this is like super interesting narrative or whatever. It was just kind of like, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I get it. You're, you're a mercenary. Shit's bad. Wars happen. Got it. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as the dialogue goes, though, yeah, I think you're right. Like, I, again, talking about a translation, so I don't know how the original was, but by and large, I actually liked it. I thought it was pretty decent. Like, each of the at least semi major characters that you come across, whether it's team members that you bring on or, you know, adversaries or, you know, just general NPCs all have a pretty distinct personality and style of speech, which you don't necessarily always get. So I did really appreciate that. It was very, it was very easy to sort of distinguish one character from another and to be able to sort of provide that kind of personality with nothing, but, you know, a relatively small text box. I think it's pretty impressive. So I did definitely like that. Yeah. I don't know how much of that was part of the translation though. I will say that like was Bishop always meant to be like a cockney British punk or was that just like a creative liberty that the translation team took, you know? Or does Barbara always Barbara, right? Does she always call you buddy like every sentence? Yeah. Brenda. I just assumed Brenda, Brenda, Brenda was Canadian. Brenda, sorry. You know? Yeah. Yeah. She's like, yeah, all right, buddy, pal, buddy, pal. It's possible. I feel like there was a phrase that was maybe written that didn't have a direct translation into a, a, like a, a better word. So buddy or friend was probably just the closest thing that he could get for it. <laughs> Listen here, friendo. Yeah. Don't call me your buddy, pal. <laughs> I actually thought this plot was I actually thought it was really good. OK. I don't know. Did either of you make it through the entirety of the game? I made it all the way up through the end of Cyberska, so Cyberska, pretty far. Okay, I mean that's that's enough where you start to pick up on some of the game's like more political conspiracy theory twists. The where society, yeah, the society, and to kind of set it up like you start in Norway and you're you're trying to get help from NORAD to help you out, and there's this like rogue insurgency or a coup d'état that happens in your home country that forces you to become a mercenary, and then through these countries that you're being a mercenary and essentially helping out governments route out insurgents or terrorists, or sometimes helping the insurgents take over their governments, you come to find out of this, this secret string puller that's controlling everything. And that's where the society fills in. And I'll say like the first half in terms of storytelling is rather slow. They have these, these three sites that are set up, which is like Sankvich. I, think Barukta and Alhabi, mm-hmm. which essentially is like the Alps, uh, Russia and S- Saudi Arabia, I guess, somewhere in the Middle East. They don't really say it doesn't really matter uh, any of those any of those cases, but they 
they send you these places. They could have gotten rid of one of those. Like not all three was necessary. I think they could have been more succinct in their storytelling if they got just cut one of those off and, and probably shortened it by about, I guess, two hours. But once you get to the second half, the plot thread that you have between a character you run into, which is uh, I think it's Genos. Is that how you guys pronounced it? Yeah. Yeah. That's the best approximation yeah. I could come up with. Yeah. Yeah. And the other character, Royce. And what was going on in their relationship to the society and, and what their goals and desires were and how that all came together. I think it was really good. The thing is, is that you have to stick with it long enough to get that payoff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a question a lot of people are going to be asking themselves in terms of the narrative. Just like Randall said, he glazed over it just because and this is a problem with with Front Mission 3 as well. Going back to the Front Mission series, it just floods you with information you probably couldn't give to flying fucks about. And it does it constantly. Now, does it have good characters? I would I would generally say so. But I also think there's a little bit too many of them. Like you have Clark. You don't need Clark. Uh, you get Emil and Axel and uh, Luvin, and Rook and Anita. Luvin and, and Rook. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, there's just there's too many of them. Uh, not just from a party standpoint. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that in the gameplay, but. Like, it just gets to a point, like, how many people are you going to have on your little roving band of mercenaries and how important are they really? And they, they just kind of get lost in the sauce at that point, because this and this is another problem I do have with the plot. As much as I did enjoy it, especially for a 1996 Super Nintendo game, which I think is one of the reasons it didn't come over here is because of the level of political intrigue and, and the serious tone that it does try to hold is it gets way too fucking Kojima anime ish especially with the conspiracy theory shit. But the other more anime point is as Albert, you're just like this like white savior character. That's just completely invincible. Who's literally from Norway. I might add. (laughs) Yes. But like it, it's so fucking weird. And the thing that pulls me out of it is you make it to some levels and they're like, Oh my God, we are taken up by one Wanzer. It's like, yeah, that's really weird because he's in a he's in a vehicle that can be commercially purchased because you get all your stuff at the same shop. Anyone else can get them. And it's like, is he so good? He can just mow down Vonzers or enemy everything like 500 of them in one level and not even get touched. And he's just like, yeah, I'm going to do it all by myself and I'm going to do it. And everyone's like, no, you don't have to do it. And he's like, yes, I will. And then he goes and does it. And it's just. That's a little irritating. That gets played out as is every single time you run into Genos or a lot of other enemies and they're like, oh, we're going to fight and you start fighting them. And then they go, oh, you've damaged me too badly. I'm going to go away, but I'll be back. There's a lot of that, too. <laughs> yeah. And I will is. say that that's that's a little grating. But other than that, when you get to the nitty gritty of it, I do appreciate it. I think it does a lot to really move square forward in terms of more Western oriented political intrigue storytelling. Yeah, and it's funny, actually, because it's interesting, the connections that it make, depending on, I guess, what you happen to be exposed to at the time. But I, I actually just watched, like yesterday, a video critique on the Hobbit trilogy, and I swear that this is related, mm. in that one of the commentaries that they made about it was the fact that it's like, you can't possibly have engaging stories for 13 different fucking dwarves. That's it's it's too it's too many dwarves. You've got like four that any given person will remember, like the leader, the angry one, 
the fat one and the one with the unnecessarily large beard. Everybody else blends into the background. Right. And it's like Mm -hmm. it's kind of almost the same deal. I felt like with the team that you end up assembling in this game of it's like there's no way that we're going to be able to properly explore every one of these characters in a sufficient manner. So unless there's like one that you somehow become personally attached to for your own reasons, the the rest of them are just kind of there the whole time, you know? Um, And it'd be one thing if they did kind of do like a, you know, a mass effect style thing where every time you had a new team member, you eventually had like a side plot thing where you explored their own personal story and it kind of built that out. But I mean, again, you, you know, like you said, we're talking about a, a Super Nintendo game from 1996 that I wouldn't necessarily expect that kind of depth from necessarily, especially given that they're trying to give us this run and gun shooter with like RPG trappings. And it already has a lot of sort of expositional and narrative cruft kind of like built around it already that I think doing that probably mm-hmm. would have been too much. But I don't know, just an interesting thought that I had anyway. Yeah. There's been far worse efforts being put into to plots of RPGs, that for sure, especially with this many characters. Yeah. Yeah. I think they did an admirable job. I can because you could even said like every character, you can remember their personality to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't I don't care about too many of them. Like once it got to Anita, I stopped giving a shit. I don't even know why Anita's there other than be a foil to Brenda, because <laughs> it's really it's really the Albert and Brenda show throughout the entire game. And then Loven. Leuven, Leuven, yeah. Leuven has some, you know, cheeky lines, which I do appreciate how he always tries to hit on all the on the girls in your party, females in your party. Yeah, you always got to have one of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> it, he immediately gets shut down the entire time. There's no gratification for him whatsoever. I will say there are some cool like side story elements, too. I think one of one of them was cool in El Hobby and they never circle around back to it until the end, which is kind of unfortunate. We had that one character that you, you this one woman that you fight and you go into a robot graveyard and mm. they crucify all the robots mm-hmm. and then after you refuse to kill her and then you come back to her and you save her life and she insists then you it's like she goes on the scene where she starts burying all the people that she killed to atone for her sins and then they they come around back to it at the end as well and i think that's at the very very end during the credits with another one of your characters which probably wouldn't expect but it's uh i'd like those little side plots too i think they're they're all right and there's more than just that but that one was really stuck out to me yeah yeah definitely and i was wondering about that one for well pretty much the entirety of the rest of my playtime with the game because i was just like i feel like it's gonna be like a lost scenario like is this gonna be like an abandoned plot thread that i'm never gonna get a resolution to which is yeah i mean you don't really get a resolution they just do bring it back up at the at the end credits yeah yeah there's that you guys definitely paid a lot more attention than i did <laughs> randall's like i did the shooty bangs i don't know what the fuck was going on no i i got to uh jose's airfield in machu picchu i uh, and uh one i don't know why but he was just a wall for me i don't know if my brain wasn't working you know like fighting him uh was a bitch mm. you meet rook at that point my brain was completely gone from companions and everything and i was like y- you know i think i and that's when i just like dropped it i was like no nah, i think i'm good <laughs> <laughs> i clearly am not invested enough the the gameplay was fun enough but like the story just smacked me in the head and 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 from what i understand like it i guess like in the in the plot it does like it goes even deeper right after machu picchu right you you start really digging into like the society and everything but 
And I was like, no, I can't. I can't care. (laughs) It doesn't get super deep after that. But they do some like real Final Fantasy type bullshit at the very end. Can I kill God? (laughs) No, no. At least you're not killing God. I will say that. So it is a JRPG where the final boss is not God. Damn it. Then it's not. He considers himself to be a God, but he is not God. Then it's not a JRPG, I guess. That's true. No. Yeah. Well, they are trying to appeal to Western audience. So there you go. Oh, that's fair. I'm sorry. I suppose you bringing up the thing about the boss fights and whatnot and Machu Picchu and what have you is probably going to be. As good as any of a segue, as far as going into talking about the gameplay, which I have a lot of things that I want to talk about. I'm sure you you guys do, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Since I'm talking, I'll go ahead and kick it off. So I don't know about both of you, but it definitely took me the better part of probably the first area, like the first set of levels to really start to get a good feel for controlling the Vonzer. It's not necessarily... Super intuitive right off the bat, mostly because of the the eight directional shooting plus moving your character sort of independently of that. But once I did get the hang of it, it actually felt pretty good. Once you once you kind of get your mind wrapped around it, I, I actually enjoyed the gameplay past that point. But the sticking point for me with that, because if you think about it, right, something like, let's say, Contra, and this is not the last time I'm going to bring that up, but Mm. it also has the same sort of eight directional, you know, shooting, right? The key difference here, and I think this is the thing that was tripping me up, is that not only is your your gun arm essentially completely independent from your character's movement, but the default setting of the game makes it so that your your gun arm sort of like normalizes to a neutral positions facing forward whenever you move your character forward or backward. That can be really awkward to get used to. And you can change it in the game settings so that your gun sort of like stays at the angle that you left it at. But then that's also like not 100% natural feeling either. And so it's like you have to compensate either way. Now, granted, having said that, I prefer the first option because that makes it a little bit easier if you're like, moving or jumping forward you know you're going to automatically like kind of shoot in that direction so i think that's more helpful than not but i don't know how did you guys feel about that because it took me a minute to really get accustomed to i would say it it did take me at least the first at least first two missions not like the full areas but like the first two missions to go oh okay so like i'm going to have to to aim this and then uh, i'm not gonna lie once i grabbed the shotgun it became uh, less of a problem you know you just kind of aim in one direction and it, things happen but it does it become intuitive and i think that's i honestly feel like that's on purpose like you know you're you're getting the feel for the mech itself and it uh you know that makes sense yeah it does i would say it, it does feel good once you get once you click with it but there are certain weapons like if you don't like 100 percent get it those weapons are absolutely fucking useless to you yeah well i'd also argue that like 80 percent of the weapons in this game are actually useless anyway but get to that in a minute yeah i I tend to 100 percent agree with randall on that now i i think because i've played a lot of shmups like conceptualizing how the ones are operates and how it controls i picked up on it almost immediately on how it operates like it didn't bother me on that front Mm -hmm. what more bothered me is something you know that that randall just said is doing any gun other than the shotgun now the default one isn't terrible Mm -hmm. to start out with but once you get the shotgun there's absolutely no reason to go away from it ever especially the laser because the laser just blows ass (laughs) that gun is fucking terrible 
Don't even try it. Maybe, maybe I just suck with it, but I really, really tried to give that weapon a chance and I just couldn't kill anything and I kept dying and I was just like, I, I hate this. The base gun is just a, is a pea shooter. So, I mean, you want to get away with from that just by default, because what good is a pea shooter? It may get really good later. I don't see how it could, but it's just like when you have the shotgun, when, which is so OP. And once I started using it, the game became just an absolute cakewalk. Why, why would you use anything else? Well, yeah. And I mean, the, the spread fire from the shotgun also just really. And, and Randall, you kind of alluded to this anyway, but it, it functions as a, as a means of compensating a little bit for the semi awkward controls of the mm-hmm. mech in that, like, you don't necessarily have to be super accurate. You can just kind of like spray and pray your way through a lot of things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To piggyback off of all of that is I did try to use the laser. It's okay if you can level it. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that it has to be able to like the main problem is is that like it does like no damage. And then like as you level it, it does more damage. But the problem is, is that it's, you know, it's it's going to get outscaled by literally everything, including the pea shooter, the Vulcan. So that's like the base gun. The benefit of the the pea shooter is like it's ammo type. Like you don't have to worry about the reload bullcrap that you have to worry about, like with the shotgun. Like if you, you blow through X many shots, so you have to wait like a couple seconds or a second for it to reload and then you get your your x many shots left the the vulcan as it levels up it, it literally just becomes like a machine gun as, as you're holding the button or pressing it uh, i found that pressing it was still faster than holding the button down but it still does less damage than the shotgun and the shotgun literally just melts everything in the game yep yeah i think from like a raw damage point of view the only other thing that would have been better is the the napalm gun that you can mm-hmm. can't buy you have to find it but you can buy it at the very end of the game, but yeah. Oh, okay. Well, functionally, they're they're hidden throughout the levels. So for the vast majority of the game, you're not going to just be able to buy. Because that's the other thing I suppose you should probably note, right? Is like there are different levels of basically every piece of equipment that slowly unlock mm-hmm. as you go through the game. And you have to find the napalm guns evidently up until the very end. But even then, just from a, a functionality perspective, like the shotgun is still definitely the way to go. Yeah, I think we should talk about levels a little bit before moving forward. Uh, this is a JRPG. So your Vonzer, no, you as a character gain levels mm-hmm. and every single time you gain levels and this goes for all of your little party members, they they can gain levels too. you gain 30 hit points, your Vonzer and all of your not all of your equipment, but most of your equipment levels up but it doesn't gain levels through experience points it it gains percentage points so if for example you have your shotgun your shotgun will start out at zero percent and there's five levels of every piece of equipment that has levels to it so you have a shotgun one two three four and five and if you use your shotgun one a lot then you're you can get your shotgun up to 100 percent, and then you can buy upgrades that will take it to a hundred and twenty percent but then if you go to shotgun two, a shotgun two will start at zero percent. You level that up by just attacking enemies and that will make your weapon more powerful. If you take damage, your Vonzer gets more hit points, uh, stuff like that. So when when Randall is saying like, oh, the, the laser becomes good once you level it up, that only can happen through actually damaging other enemies and going out there and having to kill the enemies with it. So. <laughs> Yeah, like you really have to be dedicated in order to see what this weapon could do, especially if you don't like it at first. 
Well, so the other thing with that that I'm not a huge fan of is the way that this was implemented. I feel like it brings the worst of both worlds in that I never have been a giant fan of things level as you use them more because like on paper, that sounds like a sensible idea. In practice, that's how you get people bunny hopping through Morrowind, right? So it's like a system that's either easy to game or it's kind of aggravating to just deal with. And then it's not a huge deal here, but it gets, in my opinion, a little worse when you have multiple levels of the same weapon. And by levels, we literally mean like a different weapon. It's not like, oh, the shotgun that you bought like you know two areas ago you've leveled it up to shotgun three like no it's you gained 120 percent you know experience boost or whatever with shotgun two and then when you find shotgun three in the store you buy it and that resets all the way to zero and to me that even just like from a practicality standpoint it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if you're just like okay well a shotgun is a shotgun is a shotgun then wouldn't it logically follow that if you've gotten really good at using the second shotgun you found, then you sort of intrinsically should at least be somewhat decent at using the new one? Like, I feel like I'm not, you you know, way off base there. (laughs) No, and I certainly circumvented that through my quote unquote second playthrough of it. Mm. I just completely skipped the second upgrade. Uh, mm-hmm. Like uh, I, I skipped like shotgun to, la- uh, you know, like laser two stuff like that just to wait for the third, because like having the fully leveled shotgun one was better than restarting and then getting shotgun two to like, I don't know, 60 percent by the time I find shotgun three. I was like, no, it, it's just going to be easier to to keep the fully leveled shotgun one, even if it technically does less damage. It just feels better to use. It, it's going to do you better in the long run just to wait. For like the exponential growth rather than kind of like shoehorning yourself into mm-hmm. that that weird upgrade path. Yeah. Where that's really problematic is with your special weapons, your secondary oh, weapons. Yes. Mm. Because you don't always use those. So you have a, a different set of weapons. And now what I would do is like they have this sh- like shield that would increase your hit points. And that, that one's fine because that one's just going to level up, you know, naturally. If you get an upgrade, usually the upgrade is going to have more hit points than what your basic one is you can just upgrade it and you get more hit points and everything's gravy the the big pain in the ass is your actual weapons especially the ones that have ammo so like your there's one called like a a knuckle punch which has unlimited ammo you can use as many times as possible that one's cool i found myself using that almost through the majority of the game yeah but like let's say you want to use the homing missile you only have 20 shots to the homing missile so you fire off 20 shots of your homing missile and then you get like 11 percent on your homing missile and that's assuming every single one of your missile lands and then you go through like the game and like let's say you don't really spend a lot of time grinding because you're just mowing shit down with the shotgun you'll spend all this time and money into upgrading your your homing missiles and then all of a sudden now the next homing missile is available if you've leveled it up enough it could be slightly more powerful but maybe you didn't level it up enough now you get a more powerful one but now, like you're spending all this time into leveling up a weapon that's just completely useless. And I found that so self-defeating. It's just like, why don't why don't I just like hold off until the end when you get the spark shot cannon, which is cheap as fuck. And <laughs> like then it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, that thing is broken. Yeah, like the, those 
the game is completely broken with that weapon. It's just it's <laughs> sick. It is the final boss was just me holding down a button and running around the screen. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's it's a it's a broken experience, uh, especially for the secondary weapons. Like it, nothing ever comes together quite right. It's all primary, which is fine because I think the primary weapons control well enough as they are. Yeah, I feel like this could have benefited from maybe some maybe some more playtesting or something because like just top of mind, right? A better solution to this than what they went with here was sure like you know what sure like still have it so that you can buy upgraded weapons in the same like path so i can buy shotgun four later or whatever fine do that but just have the actual percentage like xp in air quotes that the weapon is gaining as you use it just have that be a constant so for all shotguns in the whole game i am gaining x number of percent experience with that particular style of weapon and then just adjust that growth curve so that, you know, you'll hit that full 120%. You know, if once you get closer to the end of the game, if you've taken the time over the course of the game to really dedicate to a specific weapon, or if you're crazy and just want to go grind it out a bunch, I just feel like that's a better solution than this constant, like, weird reset that you do like every single time you buy a new weapon which is what they actually if i remember correctly what they do in front mission three oh, see there you go yeah now the shields did you guys use the shield at all yeah do you mean the shield uh, like which, the which one are you talking about the block yeah the block or like the hp sponge the block i don't know what i don't know what you mean oh are you talking about the dude shield or the the I'm talking about the R button shield. Okay, yeah, the active block. I didn't know if you meant that or if you meant the secondary weapon that just gives you more HP. Oh, yeah, I use that all the time. But like, yeah, I want to get into that shield. And uh, Randall, you just said that you used it. I heard you say that you did. Yes, I I tried to use it as much as possible. What I found, it almost just made more sense just to kill people and and never put my guard up. Almost be it, it felt like it got in the way. Yeah, I mean, it it does, but it completely depended on, I guess, how good you are at uh, like dodging. So I would say if you're used to like bullet hells or or shmups, like maybe dodging the, the enemy mm-hmm. fire is just more feasible. But for like, I don't play shmups or bullet hells like at all. And I was like, I am not going to be able to dodge these tiny little red pellets that I can barely see as is. By the way, I am partially red colorblind, so that was pain. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just easier to block. And then as later in the game that I got, I mean, obviously, and I guess we'll talk about this later, maybe like the difficulty curves in this game. <laughs> the difficulty More like sine a sine wave. wave yeah, yeah the, the, the peaks <laughs> and valleys. <laughs> the, the peaks and valleys and the difficulty. Like, obviously, like there was some times where you're like, ah, I don't need to do anything other than just hold right and kill thing. There were there were some times where I'm like, OK, so I'm going to walk two step block, walk two step block. And it was just like <laughs> it felt almost like necessary or required the later in the game that I got, at least for me, yeah, how I played it again. I could just be absolute dog water at this game. And I was, but it felt required the later I got. Yeah, I will say that like it's kind of half and half for me, honestly. Uh, once you upgrade to shield two, uh, you get basically full full frontal coverage from the shield and that makes it a lot more effective but i found that with with the exception of certain areas where i felt like similar to randall in that i felt like i had to use it with some enemies that just you know had like rapid fire like four to six bullets at you with no 
good way to get out of get out of it in some cases having that big ass shield to just throw up is useful i will say that there were several times where i apparently was not reacting fast enough because the animation of you putting up the shield is it's it's pretty snappy but it's still slow enough that if you're not like right on the fucking ball with that shoulder button you're going to get hit like at least a couple of times. Yeah. And also you can't put the shield up while you're jumping, which sucks. That sucks. That totally sucks. Yeah. So I found myself getting nailed in the air a lot too. And like hammering on the shoulder button and remembering that nothing's going to happen. <laughs> Especially that Sonic two design for a lot of these enemies that just kind of pop out out of nowhere. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. So that's this, this actually goes into some of the other things I wanted to talk about, about the gameplay because By and large, I actually really enjoyed playing this game. I will just say that right now. But having said that, there are some nitpicks that I I want to go through. Oh, there's a lot. One thing (laughs) to start off with is that like, okay, I understand, right, that they wanted it to feel like you were driving a big mech. Okay, cool. Fine. Fuck me. The walk speed is so slow in that mech that it's painful. And that coupled with... You know, having enemies shooting at you constantly and also and I'm going to get to this more in a second, but basically closing the gap on you like almost immediately in a lot of cases. Yeah, it really highlights just how slow your character is by default. Now, of course, this can get mitigated some if you use the the dash upgrade, which I did. Of course, if you're not careful with that, you can dash into a wall and hurt yourself, which is fantastic or an enemy or or an enemy and then bounce off and also take damage and also i actually just got really good at abusing the jump because like jump is like the velocity that you gain from jumping is far superior to just walking so i was just kind of bunny hopping through most of these levels just to move faster (laughs) so that's kind of annoying and then while we're talking about movement i feel like i should also bring up the fact that there's kind of two parts to the gameplay in that you can be in your Vonzer, which is probably the vast majority of it, but you can also pop out and just play as you as as Albert, which you should not do the human. In most cases, you should not do. I actually liked that idea. I thought it was cool that there are some sections that sort of require you to do that because when it when you do that, especially when you're so used to being inside this mech, it ends up creating this like very real sense of vulnerability. And you're just like the entire time I was just like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. I, I got to do this as fast as possible because I'm going to get fucking stepped on or something. <laughs> so that kind of dynamic I thought was interesting. But holy fuck, you're even slower. Yeah. When you're when you're a human. <laughs> yeah. And I don't give a shit that you can double tap to run. It's still so slow. I 100% agree that the movement in the human mode is uh, absolute just ass. But I'll also just go ahead and say I thought the human mode or walking around as a human felt way underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a huge time waster every time I was required to do something in that. That's how I felt, too. Especially the first time whenever you're following Brenda. Yeah. You know, you're just you're running to your mech. And I was like, I hope to God this is just like the only time you have to do this. or maybe they. They save it for like cinematic moments or whatever, because I was like, this, this feels like ass every time they made you do it. I was like, no, this doesn't feel good. And they had to have known in a, in a game where you're supposed to feel uber powerful in a mech game, 
the moment that you become tiny little human man, you're like, you know, I, I just want to go get back in the mech. Can I please go do that? Why are you making me run around? This is dumb. This isn't a Metroidvania. Please stop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I will say, like I said, that I feel I feel like I'm at least partially maybe I understood where they were going with it in sort of creating that sort of dichotomy between hey look at your this dude they can take a whole bunch of damage and you're damn near invincible in this big ass mech suit and then the moment you're outside of it it's like a completely different dynamic so i'm still going to personally give them credit for that because i think that that dynamic is interesting but by and large i do think it was probably largely unnecessary because really the only times outside of like story beats that you do this is mostly just to get into like small cramped spaces to get like extra items that they've like squirreled away, which aren't even necessarily required either. So, yeah. Oh, I got a thousand dollars. Great. You get a thousand dollars every single time you kill a bad guy, too. So it's not like <laughs> right. worth it. Yeah, I, I did not like any of those portions. Uh, speaking about things I don't like, mm. I'm going to combine the two of these into one nice little thing here is. One, that your AI is stupid. Oh, God. Yep. And the other one is that enemy explosions are the real threat as opposed to little bullets. Holy they shoot. Oh, my yes. God. Yeah. So the reason I combine those two is everything in this game is driven by money. I think that's what inspired me to talk about it was that money part. And you need a lot of money to upkeep your bonzers, to upkeep your equipment, to upkeep your fuel and ammunition for your weapons if you choose to use them, and your repair parts. So you can repair your bonzer if you take damage, which you'll need to do if you're not using a repair field, which you should, because repair fields are awesome. But your allies can't use repair fields, so you have to use the repair items on your allies. And because they're so stupid, you'll kill an enemy, and the enemy will explode, and they'll explode right on you and your ally. Because your ally or right on your ally because they won't get out of the fucking way. And the reason this happens is because the enemies just swarm you. They just come on you and sometimes they sit on you. No, no. Until not you sometimes. kill them. No, not some like fucking most of the time, especially in the second half. Yes. yes. Most of the enemies in this game, their AI boils down to just suicide run the guy. That's all Pretty they're much. doing. Yep. I honestly thought that there was going it like it, like even at the beginning, I was like, OK, so is the AI programmed to like suicide bomb me like whenever they're close to death? Yep. Like, are they programmed once I hit 50 percent health, I must run him down. Yeah. And it's such a pain in the ass, too, because that like when I the reason I didn't use my shield is because it would take too much time to get it up and giggity and by the time i would get my shield up and they would shoot they would get right in my space so if i killed them i'd take more damage from them exploding than i would have if i just took the bullets to the face even if you had the shield up by the way even if you have the shield up yeah which is not how you're supposed to do these games if you have an option to block bullets if the if the bullets are what the enemies are firing at you and they you're supposed to try and kill them the enemy's death should not be more damaging than the artillery they're firing at you. Truth. There's something fundamentally flawed with that. Right. It, it completely breaks the gameplay flow because you, you are everything outside of that one thing is telling you as a player like, yeah, fucking roll into this level as a badass mech and just mow through these guys and, you know, use your dash and have fun. But 
the fact that every time an enemy dies and the explosion damages you significantly is such a huge detractor from doing any of that. It's like the this is the same fucking argument that I have about Sonic, where it's just like, why he say go fast, but then don't. It's like the same yeah. fucking thing. And I found myself being irritated by this basically the entire game. Eventually, I just sort of was like, all right, fine. I accept that this is I'm just going to have to spend money to repair myself after every single mission because there's no way I can not get exploded on. The worst part, the reason this is such a pain in the ass, uh, the reason I said specifically by, by your AI partners is if they die, like they don't per- they don't permanent, oh, which God. is cool. Yeah, but they lose the Vonzer they were in. And if you want them to be your ally again, you have to buy them a new Vonzer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is ain't cheap, not cheap. That's why so your you companions would have to go, are a yeah. fucking liability. In in most yes. of, in most cases, so you're absolutely right. And here we go. You, uh, I'm I'm gonna talk about this real quick because it's absolutely related. So you want to talk about the the AI companions, right? It, there are several, and they're mostly pointless because the vast majority of them are trash, and as we said, a money sink and a liability. Okay, Clark's AI is beyond fucking stupid. He will step on every landmine <laughs> he comes across, guaranteed. Emil can repair you in the field, but he only does it if you're like below 50% health. Otherwise, he's largely useless and a liability. Leuven lobs bombs around everywhere, which sounds really awesome, except they also hurt you. (laughs) Axel is one of the two companions that's actually decent, and he's probably the best one overall. That's how I use it. The doctor can shield you, which is actually super helpful, and he also shields himself. So he's a great defensive option. And he rarely actually dies. So that's probably the best you can get from him. Rook is basically like Clark, but slightly better, but still not as good as Axel. So why bother? And then Anita's damage is like largely super spiky and unreliable. And she's prone to just getting blown the fuck up. So also a liability. (laughs) So out of all of the people that you meet and this whole diverse crew that you amass in your ship as you go over this game, basically it boils down to like maybe two of them are actually useful companions to take into a level. The rest of them are just going to cost you money and are a complete waste of fucking time. And even then, even then, there's there's the whole area in the game where there's a bunch of underwater levels. And the moment you jump into one of those levels, like I tried to bring Axel with me and, and it didn't matter who it was. It was anybody in a mech. As soon as I get into that level and you drop into the water and if it's if it's a purely underwater level, your companion immediately is just like, ah, I can't do this. I'm out <laughs> I'm like motherfucker. What? Like. I just went through this whole thing of like choosing who I'm going to bring and setting all this up and repairing your shit. And you had to wait. Like, why did the game wait until I got into the level to be like, nah, son, you don't get a companion. Like, fuck you. I'm going to be honest. I didn't use them. You used allies. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could. I could totally see that. I mean, Axel's pretty good, actually. He's he's a he's a good one to have around. Up until then, though, I didn't use anybody except Brenda because. She just stayed the fuck out of the way because she was up in the ship. And actually, she's super useful in some of the early boss fights because you can have her do the airstrikes and those do quite a bit of damage. So, like, I breezed through a number of boss fights using that. Point being is that, like, I feel like by and large, what we're really saying here is that there are a lot of good ideas that were put into this game 
but the execution of said ideas, maybe not the greatest, could have maybe benefited from a little bit more time in the proverbial oven, such as it is. Yeah, because I do like a lot of what they've got going on here. And again, even though I'm going off on this thing right now, it's I I actually enjoyed playing it. Um, It's just there are just some things that you kind of have to deal with or just brush aside to like actually enjoy the experience at its core it's fun it just tries to do too much yeah you can put that up summarily yeah and i mean that's that's even a good commentary just about the rpg elements in general because like right at the beginning yeah i i even said this to you because i i streamed this on our on our stream on twitch the first like two hours of playing and right off the bat i was just like oh shit i did not expect this to have a whole rpg experience and equipment system and this is way more fucking involved than I was signing up for because I thought it was just Cybernator 2.0, basically. Yeah. So that put me off initially because I was just like, this seems unnecessarily complicated. But once I understood how it all worked, I, I, I will, truth be told, I actually did like it. Like, I, I gripes aside of how the mechanics of it actually worked with like the multiple levels of weapons and, you know, the percentages not carrying over and what have you, I still did like you know, having your character level up between missions and unlocking new stuff to buy and, and those sorts of things like getting new models of mechs. That was really fucking cool, too. So I did appreciate a lot of what I think they were trying to do here. I just think like maybe we didn't quite stick the landing on a lot of it. Right. I, I completely agree. Same. Now, I think to shift something over to I think that we can all speak 100 percent positively on. Hmm. Hopefully we'll see is how this game looks it's it's visual presentation mm. randall what do you think of the graphics here just to be completely honest it's it, for its age and everything the sprite work is amazing mm-hmm. the mechs actually look like mechs like as small as the sprites actually are you can actually tell that they're piloted you can tell that they're walking like machines it's not just kind of like quick animations or or what have you there's a lot of varied uh, enemy types between like mechs, soldiers, the bosses, like all the bosses. Uh, I would say that like they're semi unique. I mean, there are, you could you could like kind of say like some of them are spliced together, but most of the enemies had, you know, like different like animations with their attacking and movement cycles and all that stuff. It was all just a, a really good package. My only complaint uh, would be that sometimes the backgrounds could be a little bland. Yeah. Not like the it'd be like the parallax backgrounds, like the way in the back stuff would look bland. Like uh, what you're jumping around on always looked really good, but sometimes like the the cityscapes would just kind of blend together and I was like, "Yeah, it's okay." That's that's actually interesting that you mentioned that. Because I specifically pointed out in my own notes that I thought a lot of the backgrounds were actually some of the best parts of it. Like, granted, there are some of the cityscape stuff that are just kind of like, oh, it's concrete. Yay. But there are certain areas like one that sticks out to me above all the other ones is uh, I believe it's one of the actually it's the level where you meet um, the, the woman there that you end up saving. Where you got all the and I'll have yeah, yeah. Where you have all the mechs like crucified on steel beams and shit. Mm-hmm. That level, holy fuck! I I stopped and took a screenshot. Actually, I have it saved somewhere because the way that they implemented the sunset in the background of these like desert dunes looks fucking incredible. And not only that, but it's the attention to detail that really sells it. Because 
in this level. And I can't think of another game that does this in, a, in the 16 bit era. I'm sure there probably is one. But off the top of my head, I can't think of anything where they were cognizant enough of the environment that they had created to only give the sun a flare effect when you're high enough up on the terrain that the front terrain wouldn't block the sun. So like when you go down into like a, a valley in, in one of the sand dunes or something, everything gets darker, like the background gets darker. And as soon as you get up to the top of a dune, I didn't notice you that. get a sun flare like for a 16 bit SNES game. That's fucking impressive. Yeah, I would agree yeah. with that. I, I guess for me, it's just those first areas really kind of well i since i played that those first areas twice like it, it really like dug <laughs> dug into me and i was just kind of like i'm really tired of this granted yes since some of the backgrounds got really pretty you know when you get to the snowy areas and everything it's like oh this is gorgeous yeah, yeah you get like the northern lights and stuff in one of them yeah it's pretty cool yeah. yeah i would say i think chain to your point too the lighting in this game is phenomenal mm-hmm. some of the effects they have going on I would, I would say more so in the foreground than the background, like in front of your character. Like when you first get to uh, Sink Rich or whatever it's called, and it's this forest area and the beams of light that are coming down mm-hmm. on your character, which for again, for a 16 bit game is phenomenal. Uh, you see the snow, the flurry effects you get in this in the snow and the backgrounds themselves. I didn't find all terribly impressive most of the time in these snow levels, but just the amount of of particle effects that they have going on at that time in in the foreground everything like that it's it's really impressive like you could tell this is a late super nintendo game this was definitely stretching the super nintendo to its limits when it wanted to plus to your point randall the sprite work here is incredible i would say when you're like the humans look like ass i would say <laughs> they look terrible i don't know they're they're kind of cute they yeah i know um <laughs> well i don't I don't think so. But visually, I the, all the animations, the way the ones are moving act, Randall, 100 percent agree with all that. I'll get to my point about like the character portraits uh, after you make your point here, because I think that's something completely separate that does need to be talked about. So, Randall, what were you about to say? Uh, just a quick point on the humans looking shitty. I do agree that the sprites are like whatever, but I think it correctly shows the size like mm-hmm. it, it shows the scale of everything. Yes. That was what I liked about those sprites. Like, yes, they're they're very basic and their stride in real life. If you were tra- like doing that, they would be like spreading their their gait as far as they could go to walk and then like moving their <laughs> shoulders real far back. It's just like, it, well, the people don't walk like that, but it does correctly for me show like how big these mechs are that you're dealing with and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And even those tiny little people sprites, the the animation is like super, super smooth, too. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as far as those character portraits I was talking about go, so every character has a little portrait in the bottom left screen about how they're supposed to look. And I understand this is Yoshitaka Amano, but some of those portraits just do not look good. <laughs> they, they, they don't fit with the environment. Like Amano, when I look at Amano, I think of Amano as high fantasy. I don't like Amano when it comes to more modern technological kind of designs, which is why I, I actually think that Amano and modern Final Fantasy don't mix because of that reason, which is why I think he's far more appropriate in the early Final Fantasies that were much more high fantasy. So here it just doesn't jive. 
like the first bad guy you really run into or you're told is the bad guy who's not uh, Colonel Ark, like his character portrait is just it's ugly. And I understand he is supposed to be ugly, but it's not the right kind of ugly. I, I really think they miss that. And it's really unsettling for a lot of the characters you see or you talk to, especially the ones that are supposed to be good. And they like they, they look evil, but they're not supposed to be. It's just really weird. Yeah, I, I mean, this is probably being a little nitpicky, and I don't necessarily want to go down this path too far. But um, right, did anybody else maybe have a little like moment where you saw Chief Bongo and was like, mm, I don't know how I feel about this. <sighs> Yes, but I try not to, you know, I, yeah. I try not to pay too much attention to it, to be quite honest. I was kind of just like, you know, what? It's, you know, you know, uh, we'll just uh, it's <laughs> leave that one there. <laughs> not trying to say anything about anything, but it is Japan. It is the 90s. Um, I, I know. I know. So I'm not D- surprised. Time, et cetera, I'm not surprised. Et cetera, but yeah. I mean, it's nothing like egregiously awful. I just no. It, it was something that stuck out to me uh, as being oddly specific outside of like all of the other kind of pseudo generic like anime protagonist portraits you know yeah yeah i guess to 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 swing off of that uh for a good note <laughs> i love albert's look and the fact that he was leon before leon was you know thank you yes he was yes i said the same exact thing yeah it's leon he's literally just leon and you get to play as him throughout the whole thing and it's it's great you know you get to deal with the the same haircut and it's it's wonderful (laughs) (laughs) also what is it with japanese game developers and um having young lovable like characters named emil what are you guys trying to do to me i only have so much emotional capacity guys like come on now uh (laughs) <laughs> that's a good question yeah but emil here is useless i mean he is but he's the, he's the same like archetype which i thought was like very yeah, weirdly specific yeah i only have enough room in my heart for one emil and he has a head like the moon <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely not this one <laughs> i mean he he does he's very similar but then once you get past his character arc which is like all of one chapter he does not matter anymore that true. is true so there you go that is true you never have to use them. The the only other thing that I wanted to mention just real quick on, on the graphics front before we move on is that from what I could see, the only real use of mode seven in this game was largely just the overworld map, which was ugly, which, yeah, which was ugly. <laughs> but also, I think that was it's fine because I'd rather I, I'd rather, especially with something like mode seven, I'd rather it be purposefully used than just implemented as like a cheap gimmick you know just like hey look we got this thing that we can do with the super nintendo because there are definitely games that do that and it doesn't actually add anything to the game mm-hmm. whereas with this having it as the overworld map like made sense just wanted to point that out oh i agree i did I agree. have one final point about the graphics mm. cutscenes, all of them beautiful love them yeah just saying just throwing it out there yeah i thought they all looked really good I mean, some of the characters look really awkward, but at the same time, I was just like, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> and before we go to like music and sound and everything, I, I this just popped into my head. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bounce back real quick to the tail end of gameplay because we didn't say it and I need to say it. Uh, holy fuck. Why is it that like four levels in every one of the areas is just unabashedly grinding? Why? Why? Because Japan. Because it's an RPG. Holy fuck, dude. Yeah. 
I was actually surprised that it wasn't even just like, you know, uh, a thinly veiled like thing. They were just straight up. I mean, Brenda is basically just like, yeah, the more shit you kill, the better it is. Have fun every single time. (laughs) And I, I couldn't believe that there were three to four distinct levels in every area of this game whose sole purpose was to grind killing enemies. Amen. Yep. It's it's all about that Western fantasy, you know. You're in a big old mech, you gotta kill a bunch of people for no reason other than uh, number go up. Freedom. I gotta do what's right and save this population by killing everything. Exactly. <laughs> you gotta kill the population you're trying to save. <laughs> Listen, all I'm saying is that I feel like this game could have been several hours shorter and more streamlined oh, yeah. if you had just implemented an XP curve that just followed the main story beats rather than having grind levels. Like, like why you can't do that when you're square in the nineties, that was not going to happen. Blah. (laughs) Anyway, but what's not blah is the music. (laughs) All right. Y'all want to know how I know this game was scored by Uematsu and Mitsuda and released between Chrono Trigger and FF seven. Fucking ask me how, (laughs) how Shane, Holy shit, it's FF7. Like, I could not... Listen, the music's good, okay? I just want to say that. It's really good. Yeah, it is It's good. really good. I could not, for the life of me, stop thinking like, hey, I'm playing Final Fantasy VII right now. Because a lot of the tracks in this game, you could just lift from this game, throw it into an FF7 fight sequence, and it would be exactly the same, like nothing changed. It borrows... I wouldn't want to say it borrows. Final Fantasy VII borrows a lot from this game. Uematsu took a lot of what he did here and he applied it to Final Fantasy 7. There's no doubt. Yep. There are times here you can listen to it and you can hear I think it's 2100 AD from Chrono Trigger, the the one with all the robots and shit. If you haven't played Chrono Trigger, that you could hear that in this track as well. So like Mitsuda's fingerprints all over from Chrono Trigger, kind of a hangover there which makes sense considering how he almost worked himself to death on that. Like, yeah. You can hear Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VII. All of that's in here. Now, like, I agree. The music is great. I think it's really good. A lot of good sampling. Sounds fantastic. I would just say they overuse some tracks a little bit. Yeah. Uh, there are some there are some tracks I hear way too much, and I, I, I start to hear them like, I okay, I, I need to hear something else, please. But other than that, yeah, it's fantastic, especially towards the end of the game. It really improves its, its overall track selection and quality as well. And I don't know if this is just me being nitpicky. It probably is. But did did either of you notice the like kind of awkward hard cuts that happen sometimes when you're in like a cutscene and you've got like, you know, that that bumping FF7 music going on and then something emotional is supposed to happen and it suddenly just drops and it's just like, this is sad music now. Like it happened a couple of times yeah. and it was just really jarring. That's an Uematsu trademark. OK, yeah. well, it's still fucking jarring. Yeah, I will say that the uh, I like the I, I tend to be a huge fan in like the science fiction and all that stuff. So like the the, the synthy futuristic vibes that I was getting from this game, I didn't care that some of the songs sounded similar. I was like, yep, I'm just vibing along the whole time. And what uh, my wife considered the most annoying song, I thought was the coolest, which was just the little shop tune. I, I don't know why, but I love the little shop tune. I liked it, too. I didn't think it was as good as you thought it was, but I didn't find it annoying like you said your wife did. Yeah. Hi, Katie. <laughs> so anything else anybody wanted to touch on there? I mean, I think by and large, we're all in agreement. Um, I think sound design, I think, was also pretty solid. I think everything 
sounded the way that it should, you know, guns were punchy. Like I think a lot of like your mechs definitely had a lot of weight to them. Um, so I think they pretty much nailed that as mm-hmm. well. Explosions weren't perfect, but you can't make them sound realistic on 16 bit hardware. They were as good as they probably could have been on that hardware, mm-hmm. probably as good as they get on the on the Super Nintendo. So no complaints with any of the sound design, really. I didn't. Uh, I will say the the spark gun sometimes made some beeping noises that were really fucking weird. Mm. Uh, sometimes there were the, these little noise artifacts that came out of it. But again, I'm on a repro cart, so I don't know how much of that is authentic and how much of it is really part of the game. But yeah, sometimes some random sounds would come out from an otherwise overall stellar sound design. I didn't run into the same issues, but I was also playing this on not original hardware. la di da di di do Right. Let's go with that. All right. So anybody got any interesting miscellany about this game? I guess I can start it off with just something that I noticed like with the I guess like the main starting point of the game is like the the, the whole plot is kind of revolving around everyone's fighting for control on the planet. And at one point the, they did what was called the Atlas Project. And I I really felt like because it's a space elevator, I was like, I wonder if this is just an allegory for like Jacob's Ladder. I, obviously, this is a Japanese game and I, I don't really necessarily know like how prominent Western theology was in the 90s in Japan, but I was just mm-hmm. like, oh, it kind of reminds me of Jacob's Ladder, like people coming together, trying to get rid of their differences, build a ladder to the heavens for for better life and then hubris and ambition completely destroy it. And it just becomes this monument and waste of space, literally. Well, I mean, Final Fantasy four did have the Tower of Babel. OK, well, then there you go. So they are they are well aware. They are well aware of Western Western cultural sensibilities, or at least they like to they they see cool stories. And they like to put them into their games. So that that could also be a possibility. Yeah, no, uh, that's that was the biggest thing that I pulled out of it. And I thought that was, it helped me maybe put the game in a different light because of that. And I was like, hey, you know, maybe maybe it's like trying to, to say other things that I wasn't seeing before because I put two and two possibly together. No, but I think that that's a cool plot point. I think that. Yeah, because I missed that. So when you say that, that makes a lot of sense in and how the, the lore goes into the background of the game and why they have this giant thing called the Atlas, which is also the last area of the game, by the way, mm-hmm. because it becomes sentient and you have to go stop it. Like and then when you d- destroy it, then humanity comes back together and they they use this tower as I guess major spoilers here, but whatever. And they use this tower to to come back together and bring humanity back together around this tower again, which was its intent to be this source of energy. So they would have to re- stop relying on consumable energy on the Earth and just get it all from the sun through this one space station, the space elevator. So, yeah, it's really cool. You could maybe say that uh, times haven't changed that much. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably not. <laughs> all right. Shane, do you have any? I don't have anything. Nah, I got nothing. I, I went I went and poked around mm-hmm. a bit, but I, I couldn't find any like little tidbits or, or anything like that. I think that tends to happen with some of the somewhat more obscure titles is that we don't always get those very in-depth like exposés on like the development cycle or whatever. So not much there on that one. Surprised how obscure it is considering the names on this game. That's what shocks me. True. Yeah. All right. So I guess this is going to bring us to our final phase of the episode where we are going to discuss whether or not this game holds up we've all 
said a lot of negative things about how this game plays, but we've kind of Oreo sandwich wrapped it as as Shane has put it in somewhat of a, a, a lukewarm positive light. So who knows how this is going to turn out here at the very end. So we'll start with you, Shane, and then Randall, you can close it out with the final word here. Do you think this game holds up today? Uh, you know, I kind of went back and forth on that a little bit, but ultimately I would say yes, despite a lot of the nitpicks and, and, and legitimate shortcomings that I think the game does have. On the whole, I enjoyed playing it far more than I thought I was going to. Once I got into it a little bit, got my head wrapped around really getting good at playing, you know, the mech and understanding the systems of the game and all of that, um, I, I actually really did enjoy it. I will say that I think it could benefit from some streamlining, but such as it is, I still think it's an enjoyable time. Um, it doesn't even necessarily ask that much of you. It's not a terribly long game, especially it's since it's considering itself a, a JRPG in, in a certain certain way. Of course, the only caveat with that, of course, is that it is not mm -hmm. anything that was released outside of Japan. So if you do want to play it, you can either take the, the Chris route and find a uh, translated repro cart. Uh, or you could take the the Shane and 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 Randall route. Well, not don't don't take the Randall route. Don't don't play the Japanese version first. <laughs> but <laughs> unless you speak Japanese, yeah. Unless I mean, unless you can read it, then fucking this is not a problem for you anyway. But assuming you only know how to speak English, like like me, and maybe a dangerous smattering of French, then I would suggest maybe just getting the fan translation patch for the ROM and then playing it that way. But if you want to go through those lengths to play it which for some people might be a little bit of an ask, then I, I still think it actually is worth playing today because the core gameplay mm -hmm. is actually still pretty fun. Yeah, I was a lot like you on this, Shane. I, I went back and forth on it as well. I think I would also say, yes, it does hold up with a lot of caveats, which is when you go into this game, you have to understand this is a traditional JRPG with a battle system that is running gun. Mm -hmm. That's that's essentially what this game is. And if you know that going into it, I think you can wrap your head around it a lot better if you don't know that going into it. That being said, almost do have to really treat this game like a traditional running gun. Stick with the shotgun. Stick with your hard punch. Don't try to get too creative, even though that's what the game wants you to do and just play it like a mech shooter and enjoy it that way. And then once you can do that, the, the plot is interesting enough that I think it can carry you through the game. The gameplay is intriguing enough and is fast enough and is frantic enough and provides enough of a challenge without being too overly easy that there is a lot of good here that makes it worth checking out, especially if you're a fan of either running guns or RPGs or just mecha shit. So I will say that give Front Mission Gun Hazard a look. It's it's worth it. I understand it might not be for everybody. And a lot of people are probably going to bounce off it probably after the first two areas, if there's any interest in it all. But those who do put the investment in and stick it with it to the end will have a payoff that I will say is worth it. So, yes, Front Mission Gun Hazard does hold up today. And for the final word. We'll head over to our guest, Randall. So, Randall, do you think this game holds up today? 
So I will agree with both of you that yes, it does hold up today with caveats, but I will add an additional note saying if you're a fan of 90s Squaresoft, just play this game. It's got the star power behind it that you should have already played this game if you're a fan of Squaresoft. It does have its rough edges, but uh, I think once you uh, understand that you're playing uh, Metal Slug, the JRPG, you'll, you'll come to enjoy it. I mean, while I didn't finish it, it doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy my time with it. It's just it wasn't my type of thing. But if I even had a passing interest in going through the back catalog of Squaresoft or I enjoyed like mech shooters, running guns, stuff like that. Yeah, no, it, this is an easy recommend, especially with, again, the star power behind it. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, there you have it. You know what? Actually, a surprisingly lengthy discussion on front mission gun hazard. But I, I think we have a, a lot game, of things yeah. to say. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on. So overall, pretty good discussion. Um, so first and foremost, of course, we would like to thank our most esteemed guest and, and patron of the show, uh, Randall. So thank you for hanging out with us and and talking mechs today. It's no problem. It was a pleasure to finally be on a mainline episode. And I I hope uh, to be able to do more of these uh, later on in time, depending on, you know, if you guys need a guest for for whatever. It was fun. I liked it. Awesome. Yeah. No, thank you for being yeah, here. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so as as we are want to do, we'll usually ask, is there anything that you'd like to, to plug on the show, Randall? Anything you got going on that you want people to know about? The biggest thing I want to plug is I want more people to join the Discord. Ah. I love people being in there. People join the Patreon so we can have uh, more people vote on those uh, those games so we can have more stuff like this. But I'm mostly just shilling for you guys. But eventually, well, I don't know when this will happen, but I do have a little channel inside of the Discord called Randall Shilshack that I do plan hopefully I'm turning into somewhat of a blog so I can post that on a website rather than just in sort of Discord channel. But no, nothing to show right now besides you guys. Awesome. All right. Well, you're, you're doing my job for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> and speaking of which, if you are listening to this, then that means you have found us. So hi, hello, or we're glad that you're here. If you'd like to engage with the show uh, outside of just letting it massage your brain space, then you can do that and we make it easy for you. All you got to do is head over to Linktree slash Retro Hangover. It's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash retro hangover and choose the destination that suits you best whether that happens to be the the aforementioned public discord uh, where you can hop in and chat with us and all uh, the rest of our fine community in there uh, you can engage in our monthly high score challenges uh, which are always interesting especially when it comes down to the wire uh, where at the time of this recording we are getting very close to the end of the month and we've got some very high zevius scores going on so uh, that is always interesting to see. I, I am tapped the fuck out of that because I am not as good as that, that game as some of our uh, community members are. That's for damn sure. Uh, no. But uh, you could test your might in there as well as you, if you'd like. And if you'd like to support the show in a more uh, sort of concrete ducket sort of fashion, then you could toss a couple of those our way uh, either through the merch store or becoming a patron, as Randall mentioned which will give you uh, a number of fantastic and sparkly benefits like uh, having your very own patron pub channel in the discord and being able to uh, vote on episodes just like these, where you can decide the course of retro hangover and choose to either allow us to play pretty good games like front mission 
or inflict abject pain on us like Superman 64. It's ultimately up to you. Um, so many options there. And one of those happens to be the Twitch channel, which Chris is going to tell you a little bit more about right now. Yes. If you head to twitch.tv slash retro hangover, you can find us on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And now since we reached 25 patrons, I have to get a capture card, which I promised everybody. So oh, no. maybe soon. Uh, once I figured out what I'm going to do, I'm going to start playing some Wii U games for you. Uh, special thanks this month, of course, to GC Freak for upping his pledge to the 8-bit level. And thanks to new patron Dave Jackson from Tales from the Backlog podcast uh, for becoming an 8-bit patron. Thank you very much. And because of that, now on Twitch.tv slash Retro Hangover at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, it's possible in the near future I might be streaming some Wii U games. We'll see. We'll see how this goes and see if I can figure this out in my technologically illiterate mind in one monitor. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> but once again, head over to twitch.tv slash retro hangover lunar forever. Back to you, Shane. All right. Well, I suppose with all of that being said. Until next time. Play with your why are you exploding on me all the time? Joysticks. Usually got to pay extra for that. Mm. Shane here with a quick message. You know, the one rule Chris and I have always gone by regarding advertisements is this. It has to be something we use and can personally vouch for. If you know me, you know I love coffee. And Bones Coffee Company has been my go-to for home brewing for quite some time now. Their small batch beans come in an impressive variety of flavors like Mint Invaders from Chocolate Space or Electric Unicorn, which I swear tastes exactly like Fruity Pebbles. And the best part? No added sugar or calories involved, just natural flavors infused right into the beans themselves. Build your own sample pack of five four ounce bags to find out which flavors speak to you, or jump in head first with full 12 ounce bags. They've even got K-Cups. Step up your homebrew game with Bones Coffee by visiting bit.ly slash RHP Bones. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash R-H-P-B-O-N-E-S.